The congregation, please open with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. You're looking at verses 9, or 1 through 10 in chapter 9 this afternoon. Mark, chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Please join with me in prayer. Lord God Almighty, we again approach unto Thee boldly through Christ, by the power of Thy Holy Spirit, unto Thee who can now call our Father. Lord, as Thy children, we approach. We ask for Thy blessing, that we would feast upon Thy Word, Holy Spirit, that Thou wouldst apply it to our hearts as we hear it read and preached. Thou wouldst open up our minds, our eyes spiritually, our ears spiritually and physically, that we might hear, that the word might be embedded deep into our heart, we might be transformed by thy word, being made into the image, conformed unto the image of thy Son, O God. Lord, please help us. Help this preacher to expound thy word. And for all of us to receive thy word with gladness, eagerness, diligence, and joy. Lord, we thank thee for the salvation which we have through thy blood. We ask that we might be brought to live unto thee all the more. Conform every part of our mind and heart and walking unto thee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Here now the reading of God's holy word. And he, Jesus, said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias, that is Elijah, with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, It is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man any more, save Jesus only with themselves." And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen, till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning with one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it. Amen. Amen. Dear congregation, 
How often we as Christians in all of our Bible study, in all of our theological inquiry, all of our examination of sermons and books miss the point entirely. It is true, just as Jehovah God reproved Israel, that by and large, God's people, even today, those who profess to be, are destroyed for a lack of knowledge, as we see in Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6. Many Christians, many professing Christians and true Christians sit languishing in biblical and theological ignorance, being tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, lacking comfort, direction, assurance, and confidence of those things which the Scriptures teach. They are destroyed for a lack of knowledge, but not just of any knowledge. Knowledge of those key things, those central things of religion. We know many, don't we? Of even many Reformed Christians who can wax eloquently on some arcane or obtuse metaphysical aspect of doctrine. The deep things of Scripture, as they say. The intricacies of certain eschatological views. Pontifications and surmisings on God's hidden decrees. Flimsy certitudes concerning the doctrine of divine simplicity. Yet, when it comes to the plain and the main things of the scriptures and its relation to the destructive heresies and cultural shifts of our day, they show themselves to be utterly ignorant of biblical Christian truths. Dear congregation, these are people who hold vaunted letters from prestigious seminaries who know more than any of us shall ever know about theology and the Bible, about church history and the articulation of theology throughout church history. Yet, on the main matters, they seem to know nothing for all their learning. How many of the unlettered laity, quote-unquote, as well, are so concerned with the issues of the day, the issues of the, the hour, the minute, that they forget the solution to the problems that they see in culture, namely Christ's gospel. For social good, they'll go to war. They'll go to war. But they bring no armor nor weapons with them into this battle. That is the armament of the gospel. Armament from on high. The sharp sword of God's word. Beloved, there can be no doubt that all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves. That is, not every Bible doctrine is as clear as others. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, our confession says, believed and observed for salvation, that is, the main themes of Scripture, shine forth from its pages as the noonday sun, don't they? How often we have heard ministries and churches give the clarion call, For the church to be relevant, relevant, to speak a word in season to the cultural and current issues of the day. But how many have labored rather in aping the culture than transforming it by God's word? How big or small, how personal or national, it is only those main themes of the gospel, those main themes of the Bible that have anything relevant to say whatsoever. If we want people's lives to be transformed for Christ, 
dear congregation. If we wish to see evil and darkness dispelled from our land, for the church to grow up into maturity in the things of God, then we must harp upon the main themes of the scriptures. The main themes of the scriptures. And never leave them. What are those main themes? The sovereignty of God. The person of Christ. The atoning work of Christ. Justification by faith. And possibly most importantly, that first sola of the Reformation. The authority and the sufficiency of the scriptures. Harp on those things. Make much of those things. And we will not make men for the fire, Paul Washer said. What could be more relevant to personal struggles, a broken marriage, church church issues, evangelism, local government, inept and wicked rulers, the destruction of Western culture as we know it, sexual confusion, gender dysphoria, the abomination of our times? What could be more relevant to those things in addressing those things in solving those things than the cross of Christ, the sovereignty of God and the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture? I posit nothing could be more relevant to those things. I remember being delivered, saved, redeemed by our blessed Lord Jesus Christ as an 18-year-old and coming out of atheism, knowing nothing about Jesus Christ. And these ministries, these youth ministries, these relevant churches, trying to tell me and entertain me, this is what Christ is. He's relevant. I said, none of what you are telling me is relevant about Jesus Christ, is relevant at all. Had I known this was Christianity, I would have stayed as far away as I could. The blood, the cross, the sovereignty of God, the deity of Christ justification by faith, the authority and the sufficiency of the infallible word of God, that God has spoken and he's spoken clearly. Those things are relevant. You want to see this country turn around. You want to see this world turn around. An entire nation brought to its knees before Jesus Christ. Harp on these things. Preach these things. There is no other solution. There is nothing relevant to say. While man's heart remains wicked and destitute and far from God. It doesn't matter how moral you make him. You only make him a beautiful piece to be put into hell. Mm. We must, dear congregation, have a strong, masculine, faithful, and focused Christianity. God does not stutter in his word. Thus, the church must not stutter in repeating it. Jesus at the center, at the center of it all, the main themes. It is to this, the main themes, that our text points us today. In our text, let us consider three points. First, what does verse 1 mean? The meaning of verse 1. Secondly, the coming glory of Christ and his people. The coming glory of Christ and his people. And third, Christ, the true hermeneutic. Christ, the true hermeneutic. First, what does verse 1 mean? Let's read 9, verse 1. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, 
that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Although those English words upon our page, it doesn't matter what language you read them in, in the original Greek, they're plain enough. We understand them. Yet their interpretation has been much disputed. Entire tomes have been written on what this passage means, this verse means. There is hardly a verse, and this verse appears in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The interpretation thereof being more disputed, especially in Mark's gospel, we can rightly say that this is the most disputed verse in the entire gospel of Mark as to its proper meaning. What did Jesus mean? We must ask. What did Jesus mean? That there were some standing right there before him which shall not taste of death. That is, they shall not die till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. What did he mean by that? Because again, unfortunately, these verse numbers and these chapter numbers have been carelessly in many places, like here, tossed into our text. Dividing the ending of what Jesus is saying in chapter 8. And isolating this. What does he mean? We have to remember he's talking to people directly in front of him. Well, there's four or five main interpretations that theologians and commentators take. The first takes the kingdom of God coming with power as referring to the parousia of Jesus. That is his second coming, his appearing, the appearing of Christ, his second coming at the last day. So they take this to mean there are some standing in front of him right there that will not die until Jesus comes back or before Jesus comes back. Taking this as the meaning, theologians have then taken two main views as to how to interpret that meaning. The liberal and the neo-Orthodox interpreters and theologians, such as uh, Pannenberg, Wolfhart Pannenberg, I read his book on Jesus, the historical Jesus. The liberal and neo-Orthodox interpreters have said that we have here an example of Jesus being in error. In his humanness, he was mistaken. He thought that he would return to establish his kingdom on earth within the lifetime of the disciples standing in front of him, but Jesus got it wrong. Other, more conservative interpreters take the meaning that Jesus would return before these disciples died, his second coming, take the meaning as mystical and metaphorical. They shall not die because they have everlasting life through Christ. And his kingdom shall come with power spiritually. He will have a second coming spiritually when the Holy Spirit is given to them. A second interpretation sees this verse as referring to the transfiguration of Christ here in our text. They say that is the glory they're speaking of. Some of the disciples standing there, that is Peter and James and John, should not die before they saw the kingdom of God come with power, as it is demonstrated here in Christ's transfiguration while they're with him on the mount. Some interpreters say that's what is being referred to there. Others take the verse to be referring to the death and the resurrection of Christ. Then, at that time, the disciples, minus Judas, that's why it's only some standing here, because Judas would die, will see the kingdom of God come with power. And still others interpret the verse as pointing to the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit would be given with power to the disciples. It was then, at that moment, that the kingdom of God came with power. But all of these solutions we find objectionable because they are too exclusive. They're restrictive of the promise of Christ to a single event in time. We find that the best understanding of this verse is to see it as referring to 
a gradual and progressive coming of the kingdom. What do we mean by that? Well, the kingdom of God is spiritual, instituted by Christ in the hearts of men and in society at large. And this kingdom shall come in power by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, raising the spiritually dead unto spiritual life. Yet, we must acknowledge also that there are certain signposts or key events in the kingdom's coming to which we can look. The transfiguration, for instance, declares that though Christ should suffer and die, yet this will be his glory. It's actually his glory, not his shame. And when he rises from the dead, his disciples shall see the true meaning of his person and work as the Christ, the kingdom of God, coming in power. They will truly understand. His death, resurrection, and ascension testify then that his kingdom is not of this world, but is spiritual, accepted of God, and powerful. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit is another signpost at the day of Pentecost, demonstrating that the work of Christ was effectual to establish this spiritual kingdom in the hearts of men and to empower his disciples to likewise pick up their cross and follow him. That's the interpretation we take. It looks at all of them as signposts of the main theme, the coming of God, here spoken of, the coming of the kingdom of God is not necessarily only the second coming of Christ, but is the coming of the kingdom in the hearts of men. Because the kingdom of God is not outward, but inward, spiritually, in the hearts of the regenerate elect. Giving careful attention to the context of a passage, any passage that we come across, is always key. Careful attention to the context. All the more so here in this place. Countless incoherent and incorrect interpretations of scripture have arisen from a simple failure to read the context. So here in verse 1 of chapter 9, we see the key to understanding 8, 27 through 38, as well as 9, 2 through 10. It sits right here in the the middle of this, the rebuke of, of Christ to, to Peter and the call to pick up the cross and follow him is also the interpretation of the transfiguration. It sits couched here in the middle of both of these sections. Therefore, we take the meaning of 9-1, the first verse of chapter 9, to be this. And it's by this understanding of it, which we understand both Christ's previous words and his transfiguration. Namely this, the disciples still lacked understanding of Christ's person and work. They didn't have full knowledge what the Messiah had come to do. They still were thinking that there must be some physical or national aspect to the establishing of the Messiah's kingdom. Their mindset was worldly, temporal, and transient. This verse contains the main point of Christ's rebuke of Peter and his call to a discipleship of self-denial and cross-bearing. Peter thought, you remember, that the Christ should not suffer and die on the cross. That doesn't make any sense. Why would the Christ, who is the deliverer of God's people, the deliverer and redeemer of Israel, die on the cross in Jerusalem after being rejected? He rejected that and told Jesus, it shall not be so with thee. But Jesus rebukes his satanic misunderstanding. Not only was it the chief work of the Christ to suffer and die for his people and to be raised again for their justification, but those who would be his disciples must likewise deny themselves, 
take up their cross, and follow him. This was the true glory of the Christ. This was the coming of his kingdom and power. And this they would see in their lifetime unfolding in glorious progression, fulfilled in the Spirit's outpouring in the establishment of his spiritual kingdom in the hearts of men all throughout the world. So it's in light of that interpretation of 9-1 that we see both the passage before and also now the transfiguration. Though despised as weak, and foolish through carnal eyes, the disciples of Jesus must have Christ-centered view of this. We must have Christ-centered eyes. As we read in 1 Corinthians one twenty-five. the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The kingdom that Jesus Christ establishes is a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of men. This kingdom the disciples would see coming with power in their lifetime before they had tasted of death. Having then dealt with what is meant so far as we can determine of 9-1, let us turn to our second point, the coming, of, the coming glory of Christ and his people. Number two, the coming glory of Christ and his people. Now, the context being established for us we can more accurately understand the scene that is the transfiguration before us. Here, Christ is revealed in a glory that has up till this point been unseen. Let us read verses 2 through 8 once again. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow. So as no fuller on earth can wipe them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say. He didn't know what to say. For they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Dear congregation, from Christ's transfiguration, which we see here in this passage, let us learn, first of all, that although Christ's, Christ appeared meek and lowly while on earth, despised and rejected, weak and beggarly, yet the day is coming when he shall appear in all his glory, power, majesty, and strength, when every knee shall bow before him, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's first of all what we should look at and learn from the transfiguration, because it is that which Christ first and foremost wanted his disciples to understand. Because immediately to the disciples of Christ, Jesus had up till this point appeared nothing but meek and lowly. Though he had this ability to demonstrate great signs and wonders, miracles, yet still he was a man just like they were. Just like they were. But the transfiguration foreshadows his coming glory to them, which he would have in his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God. What Peter, James, and John were now seeing would be more fully understood after Christ's resurrection and ascension, after the giving of the Holy Spirit, is when they would 
more accurately understand what they're seeing now. And we see that Peter did did indeed learn something of this in the book of Acts at his Pentecost sermon. He says to the multitudes there gathered at the day of Pentecost, that though men, the men there before him had taken Jesus of Nazareth by wicked hands and crucified and slain him with those wicked hands, yet God had demonstrated him to be the Christ, that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, raising him up, having loosed the pains of death, he says in his sermon, and exalted Jesus of Nazareth to his right hand as the Christ. By this, it could no longer be denied that God hath made that same Jesus whom they crucified, both Lord and Christ. We see this in Acts chapter 2. So although Jesus had seemed weak and despised, so much so that these wicked men were able to take him and put him to death and crucify him, yet by his resurrection and ascension, it was demonstrated that this Jesus of Nazareth was both Christ and Lord. So here in the transfiguration, Peter was giving a lasting foretaste of the fact that the same Jesus who had told Peter previously that he must be crucified and risen again, which then Peter rebuked him for, would be demonstrated in glorious power and authority when he's raised again and ascends to the right hand of God. So Peter learned something from this. In the transfiguration, these three disciples and we with them see the meek and lowly Christ, though crucified, would be risen and set at the right hand of God in the heavenly places and would work powerfully in his people, establishing his coming kingdom on earth in the hearts of his regenerate people. The transfiguration, therefore, foreshadows Christ as set far above all principality and might and dominion and every name that is named and as head over all things to the church. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. So too, dear congregation, in the transfiguration is foreshadowed the second coming of Christ in judgment, power, glory, and dominion. In another place, in Matthew, Jesus says, The Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And then he shall say to those justified on his right hand, the elect, those in whom the kingdom of God has come in power, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But then Jesus will say to those unbelieving and wicked on his left hand, who resist and war against his kingdom rather than accepting it, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. We see this in Matthew 25. So in that day, Jesus shall come, just as here, clothed in fine white linen. White and clean, it says in Revelation. With a name written upon him, upon his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. And out of Christ's mouth on that day shall go a sharp sword to smite the nations and to rule over them. And the wicked of the earth in that day, those at the left hand, shall hide themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and shall say to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That's what shall happen at the last day. This Jesus glorified, shining in white, 
pure, clean linen shall come and judge the wicked. So here we see Jesus clothed in white, more brilliant white than any fuller on earth could make them before Peter, James, and John, foreshadowing and pointing to his second coming. So in the transfiguration, both we and the apostles are given to consider the second coming of Christ in glory, a foretaste of that glory which Christ shall have on that awful day, when Christ shall divide the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, the believing from the unbelieving, and shall sit as judge of all. But likewise, dear congregation, let us also see in the transfiguration that like Christ, though appearing weak and lowly now, we, the church, shall be glorified in him. So to his people, we shall one day be glorified. Christ is already glorified and exalted at the right hand of the Father in heaven, but his glory is not yet fully manifest, is it? It won't be until that last day. So too, we, dear Christians, who are conformed to the image of Jesus, as we see in Romans 8, being predestined, called, and justified, are already glorified. Yet, our glorification is not yet fully possessed in this life. We are still beset with sin and weakness, ignorance, and sorrow in this life. But through the power of the glorified Christ, working in us by his Holy Spirit, as we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, God working in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure, by grace for grace, we are being changed, as Paul says, into the same image of Christ from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Progressively, we are marching towards that day when our glorification shall be fully possessed. In the transfiguration, we see that because God has begotten us again, as Peter says, unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that we shall one day, as Christians, fully possess an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for us, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 4, 4 through 5. However, dear congregation, let us also learn, remembering the context in which the transfiguration occurs, that Christ and we in him will only have this glory, will only be made perfect through suffering and self-denial, the taking up of the cross, the resurrection, and the new birth. Before the Christ can obtain the glory here foreshadowed, he must first suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and after three days rise again, as we saw in 8.31. Humiliation precedes glorification. The grain must first fall and die before it can sprout unto new life. In order to be made perfect and the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him, Jesus, though he was God's eternal son, still he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, we read in Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. Though in the form of God, 
even equal with God, yet the Son of God had to first take on himself the form of a servant, made in the likeness of men. He had to humble himself and become obedient unto death.